0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, so let me read from Colossians. We'll get started. So this is Paul, the end of his greeting. From the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what he prayed. Asking he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider Your Word, as we consider Your will for our lives. What does it mean um, to seek Your guidance? We need You to open up our hearts to learn from You. We need Your Holy Spirit to work on us and to teach us. So be with us now and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, we all had this moment as a child, right? Uh, the moment where your desires and your parents' desires for you didn't line up, right? Maybe a lot of you are still in that moment, right? And, uh, and when you're a young child, uh, when you're younger... The only thing worse than that is the horrible moment later when you realize they were right. Uh, That what they wanted was better for you than what you wanted for you. There's an old Jerry Seinfeld stand-up sketch he does about candy. Have you all heard this thing he does about candy? He's like, until you're 12 years old... You basically have one fundamental driving need in the world, and it's just get candy, get candy, get candy. He's like, school, parents, teachers, activities, these are all obstacles you have to get through to get more candy. And, um, you know, parents are pushing sugar, or sorry, pushing vegetables and trying to cut out sugar. Here's what we all kind of know now that we've kind of gotten into the realm of adulthood a little bit is they were kind of right about the vegetable thing and the sugar thing, right? Right? What they wanted for us was better for us than what we wanted for us. When we look at Paul's letter to the book of Colossians, his heart for them, what he wants for them, I want us to see and to be challenged by maybe the possibility that what God wants for you is something better than what you want for you. That's actually good news. It's hard to sort through, but it's good news. And the first thing that you notice in his prayer is there's no prayer for temporal things. Right? Things that pass with time. Things that have no eternal significance. But oftentimes, what we want for ourselves, or even what we're asking for from God, how often is our prayer mostly about temporal things? But what we have here is in Paul's heart, his prayer for the church. We see what I think are the things worth desiring. So we'll ask kind of three questions. What is it God wants for us? What is His will for your life? Why is that what He wants for you? And then, how to get in on it. What is God's will for our life? Why is that God's will for your life? And then, how to get in on it, how to live it. So what is, what is it that God wants for you? What's the vegetables He wants, right? Right? Paul begins his prayer. He says, You know what I pray for you all the time? That God would fill you with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, God's will language, if you've been around Christian circles very long or very much, can get a little weird at times. And it's gotten a little wonky. And I think it's what's happened, and maybe this has happened for you, is it's become more about how to get God to tell you how to make certain life decisions, which is not what Paul's talking about at all. Right? Should I go abroad next year? Who should I room with? Which housing? Right? That's not what Paul's talking about, and that's often the way we talk about this kind of God's will language. And I think what's happening when we begin to invoke God's will language on simply well, I just want to know God's will for this next life decision. What's happening is actually we're taking Christian vocabulary out of its original context, what God's doing and what He means, and importing it and overlaying it on what we really care about. And so we try to spiritualize another situation because that other situation is really our hope for salvation, right? If I can line up the circumstances of my life perfectly this fall, that's what I hope for. So I'm going to import in an insincere way this God's will language to that situation. And that can create a really confusing dynamic, right? Because we're using God not to pursue His will, but to get Him to make decisions for us about the things we want, and I think what's really going on is we're overlaying our desires with Christian language and actually haven't looked at the ridiculously extremely clear language of the Bible about what God really wants for us. God is not unclear about what he wants for you. It wouldn't make sense for him to be unclear about what he wants for you. That's kind of a dumb idea to think, "Oh, God's being really ambiguous about what he wants for you." That's not a loving father. He's been very clear. We just kind of haven't wrestled well with the fact that we want God to tell us more about our boyfriend or girlfriend than to tell us about what he's telling us about. Let me give you an example of this. This happened in my life, in the real world, actually when Elizabeth and I were, before we even knew each other, but worked on the same camp staff, I was a dishwasher, she was a counselor, summer of 97, right? We didn't even talk to each other that summer. We worked on the same staff in Northern California, from Mississippi, from Alabama, didn't talk, Met how many years later? Five years later, in Knoxville, Tennessee, Data got married. It was awesome. Anyways, here's what happened that summer between our mutual friends, Francis and Craig. This is a true story. You're going to think it's not. It is. Craig worked on the ropes course. Francis worked on the ropes course. She had a crush on Craig. She's like, God, tell me if it's your will for me to date Craig. Prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. All (laughs) right? One day, Francis is going around the ropes, course workers, and said, hey, I'm going to go get refreshments for anybody. What do you want? Ah, Diet Coke, Gatorade, water. Craig orders water. Craig has this reputation. We remember this for drinking whole milk at camp. It's one of those camp things where something mundane becomes really funny and serious all the time. So she goes and gets drinks for everybody. Craig had ordered water. This happened. She brings whole milk, right, to be flirtatious, to endear herself to him, all that kind of stuff. It's a good move. You should do these kinds of things. So I'm endorsing this behavior. (laughs) This really happened. He's like, oh, wow, neat. Flirt, 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 right? Works. (laughs) This really happened. She wakes up the next morning, and her devotional is in the book of Judges. There's a story in the book of Judges where this enemy of Israel, this guy named Sisera, is on the run. The Israelites are trying to kill him. This happens. Go read. She's reading this. Sisera runs into the tent of this woman named Jael to hide from the Israelite armies. Goes in the tent, and she starts to help him kind of hide, and he says, Will you get me some water? This happens. J.L. goes out and gets him milk. (laughs) Frances closes her Bible with 100% what she thinks in her mind is Holy Spirit confidence (laughs) that she and Craig will get married and have children and live happily ever after. Right? How, How do you doubt that? If you know the book of Judges, you know she should have kept reading. The very next verse is Sisera falls asleep. And J.L. takes a tent peg and a mallet and drives it through his skull. (laughs) Here's what she did, which we all do. It's okay. You're safe in Jesus to wrestle with this, okay? She just wanted a boyfriend more than anything else in the world. And she wanted to make Bible verses in her relationship with God about getting a boyfriend. God doesn't care. Okay, He's not using the Bible to tell you that the person you gave milk is who you should marry. Also, they never dated and never got married. Don't have kids together. They're all married to separate people. What he wants for us might not be what we initially want, but it's absolutely what you need. And we need to see and be challenged here that God actually aims for something better for us. For many of us, maybe all that you take away tonight is a willingness to struggle that maybe your goals that currently are requiring all of your bandwidth and if you're honest have actually captured your heart and imagination are not worth the investment that you currently give them and cannot shoulder the hope that you've placed in them. Because God's will for your life, the best possible thing that can happen to you in this life is that you grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, the ability to navigate any situation, rush falling apart, a sick parent, a failing grade, a breakup, anxiety, moral failure, but also even handle career success, financial success, with spirit-led wisdom and spirit-led understanding. What is it that you think you need to navigate life and as you navigate it, Experience deep joy. That means feel joy in a real way. Do you think that you need to win or do you think you need wisdom? Do you think that you need to get what you want and are aiming for and working toward or do you think you need to develop the character to live well and kindly with what you have? What's better, for you to get the absolute ideal rooming situation this fall or for you to become the kind of person that has the depth and the wisdom and the compassion to love the roommate you get? Which is better, to eliminate the parents you hate or to forgive the ones you have? How often are we as Christians more concerned with using God to make a decision or acquire the circumstances we want, failing to miss that He longs for something better for you, for you to become the kind of person who grows into a wisdom and an understanding that gives you the strength to, neg- to navigate whatever situation you fall into tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. God is not in the business of telling you what tomorrow holds. He is in the business of aiming for you to grow in wisdom and understanding so that tomorrow you can walk through your friendships and your interior life of fear and anxiety, your assignments, your food choices, your family situation, through your failures and even through your wins with godly resilience and godly wisdom and godly understanding. What is Holy Spirit, the, the word spiritual refers to the Holy Spirit and applies to both wisdom and understanding. What is Holy Spirit led wisdom and Holy Spirit led understanding? It is the ability to more and more map every aspect of your life, all of your situations and circumstances, the ones outside of you and the ones inside of you, onto God's story of redeeming love. It's knowing the big story that you're a part of so that in the individual chapters of your life, the big ones and the small ones, you know how to think and live and move. Jesus actually explains the ministry of the Holy Spirit in several chapters in John. He explains why the Holy Spirit comes and what His ministry is to you, right? The Holy Spirit, weird stuff. It's not as weird as you think. John 14, 26, this is what Jesus says. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I've said. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is teach you what Jesus has taught you. 15, 26, when the helper comes, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about Jesus. John 16, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here's what that means if the Spirit is working in your life. It means you'll recognize evil in you and in the world. You'll grow in the ability to say, like, I think that's wrong. You'll grow in the ability to look at yourself and be like, I think that's wrong. You'll also grow in the ability to say, I think that's good. I think that's good. That's the Holy Spirit at work. As your heart is tuned to see evil and to see righteousness well. Here's what else the Holy Spirit does according to Jesus. He will glorify Jesus. He will take what is Jesus' and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Jesus's. This is what Jesus says, Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what Jesus is saying about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how He's working inside of us. Weird stuff, right? It's not as weird as you think. He's saying that the role of the Holy Spirit, that the spiritual wisdom understanding He gives this. He gives you the knowledge and belief and confirmation of Jesus's love For you. And that when you grow in that, it produces Christ like love for others, which is God's will for your life. A couple of days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, and it was right before he had his last investor call. He had been turned down by several investors for his startup. He had his, re- his last meeting with an investor, and it was not looking promising. He was experiencing tremendous anxiety, actual physical tightness in his chest. And he was like, what am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do? And here's what he was asking at first is, how, how can I get God to tell me how to craft my message in a way to get this investment? And I just said, I don't think God cares about this investment. You've invested into this conversation, what we're all doing, your hope at eternal joy and peace. You think if you get this win, all of your wildest dreams come true and you have deep peace for your soul for the rest of your life. He's like, you're right. I said, here's what God's will for you is. is for you to walk in that meeting and say... This guy's acceptance of me doesn't make me and his rejection of me doesn't break me. I know who I am in Jesus. All my fears and shames and guilt have been taken away at the cross. The eternal inheritance of the sons of God is mine because I'm sealed by the blood of Jesus to God. I am loved. Now, if he knows that he's loved, how does he go into that meeting? A totally different way. Doesn't promise a win, but he goes into a totally different way. Here's one thing he can do. He can instead... Of operating with complete self-interest, actually care about the world and even the person he's talking to. Up until that moment, he's only acting in self-interest. If you don't believe you're loved, you can only act in self-interest. You cannot be a helpful person in the world at all unless you see ways being helpful also benefits yourself. You know you're loved. You know what happens. You can become generous, wise, calm, secure. You have the freedom to start to think about other people's well being and not always just simply in calculation to your own. He needed to know who he was in Jesus so that he could have the freedom to seek what's best and even what's loving and generous to the investor. Love has the ability to set aside and care to set the self aside and give us the ability to care for the interests of others. You can only love if you know you're loved. Now here's the question. Why is that God's will for our life? It's disappointing, right? I want him to tell me if I was supposed to be CS or pledge this fraternity or graduate early. But his will for your life is wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you walk in a manner worthy of him and may please him in every good work. Answers. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to earn the favor of the Lord. It's not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is actually something that's really simple and really childlike. You've already thought too hard about this and you need to back up. It's actually simpler than you think. It is simply the joy of making someone you love happy. You know this. You've experienced this. It's it's nothing more than this. It's look, dad. I have four little girls. They're getting bigger now. When they're younger, they colored and draw pictures all the time. They would focus. They would do the best that they could, and they would finish, and they would run to me or run to Elizabeth and say, Look, Dad. Look, Mom. They were not trying to earn our love. It was never about that. They simply wanted to delight me and delight Elizabeth because they knew we already loved them. This is the simplest aspect of love, and we don't need to overthink it. The experience of love actually finds its height of joy. You want to be happy tomorrow? Make tomorrow a look-dad day. Don't, look, don't make tomorrow like, oh my gosh, God, please don't dislike me because I'm not doing a great job tomorrow day. That's what Stanford does to us already. We don't need any more of that, right? Make tomorrow a look-dad day. Try your best and say, look, Dad, because he loves you and you love him. You've seen this done in the exhaustively thoughtful date. Maybe you've done this, right? When a significant other plans this elaborate date, takes all of their resources, and does it not trying to earn the favor of the significant other, but they simply enjoy delighting the significant other. That's what Paul's talking about. The reason that we aren't happy is not because you're not succeeding. Do you know you can be happy and not be successful? The reason we aren't happy is because we haven't understood what we actually know to be true about happiness and about our humanity. Happiness is the product of love, not success. Happiness is the product of success is the lie that's killing us. Happiness is the product of knowing God who loves you and loving God in return. How? By walking in a manner. in class tomorrow, at lunch, on Friday night, welcoming outsiders, being generous, serving, resting, forgiving, so that you're excited to say, Look, Dad, what does it look like? He tells us. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, getting stronger by His power. What is fruit? Paul explains that in other letters. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's Christ-shaped character. That's what fruit is. What does he mean when he says increasing in the knowledge of God? That doesn't mean simply increasing in the knowledge about God, like learning how to describe him better. It involves that and a whole lot more. If you read the Bible, you know that word know, to know someone, is a really intimate word. The first time it shows up, Adam knows Eve and they have a baby. Know, to know someone, is an intimate word. That's the kind of knowledge it's talking about. To know God is a friend. It's a relational knowing. It's a deep, intimate knowing. And here's the thing. The more you know someone, the more you can actually delight them. You, you actually already understand this principle. When Elizabeth and I started dating... Actually, even before we started dating, we played Ultimate Frisbee together all the time. Um, When we started dating, she had her birthday early on, and I thought, right, trying to be the great boyfriend, oh, I'm going to get her a great present for Ultimate Frisbee. I can't believe I did this. I bought her cleats for her first (laughs) birthday. Yeah, that's true. Y'all are getting true stories tonight. You do every night, but first birthday, I bought her cleats. Here's the deal. I wanted to please her. The intent was there. I didn't know her, so the impact was not there. As I got to know her, I found out what she's like, so I know the things to do to please and delight her. She wants quality time, not cleats. For the record, I want shoes. Okay? So I was kind of imposing my own love language on Elizabeth. Hers is quality time. Mine's not gifts. It's actually very specific. It's just shoes. (laughs) The more you know someone, the more you can delight them. And God has been really clear. He has never been ambiguous about what delights him. It's not A's. God looks at the person that made the F on the midterm and you who got the A on the midterm, and he's not like more delighted in you. Did you know that's true? It's not success. It's not what delights him. He's been really clear about what He enjoys seeing you do. We mentioned it earlier. Fruits of the Spirit. Friendship to strangers. Grace to enemies. Heart for the lonely and the outcast. I think what's going on, the reason that's confusing for us, is a lot of us are not seeking His pleasure. We're using Him to seek our own pleasure. The delight of of the Lord, the, uh, bringing delight to the Lord requires that we grow in knowledge of Him. So you please Him. Why is this God's will for your life? In order to enjoy the delight of pleasing Him by bearing fruit, to do that you have to grow in the knowledge of Him. Lastly, by being strengthened by His might for endurance and patience with joy. So strength is the ability to do the hard, good things, right? And then endurance is the ability to continue to do the hard, good things. Hence, with endurance and patience. It's easy to start well. It's easy to be like, tomorrow is a look-dad day. I'm going to do it, right? We can do that. Maybe tomorrow, maybe for half a day, right? This time, I'm going to get it right. It's another matter to endure, to end well, not just start well. And then to do that with joy, right? What you need to understand is you need to understand the delight of strength. And I have, this is amazing. So last week, I've made a lot of bad, you know, bought Elizabeth cleats. Made another mistake last week. Not Elizabeth with my children. I set our big girls up to train with an ECNL soccer team. You're going to learn way more about youth soccer tonight than you planned on. (laughs) That is an elite club's national team. Here's what you need to know about an elite club's national team. This 13-year-old girl's soccer team is better than half of the Division One soccer teams you've seen. All of these girls will play on top 10 teams. A lot of them will comprise the U.S. national team. Now, I overstate my girl's ability in soccer. I know that. That's a personal, spiritual struggle of mine. I got a little way too excited this time, right? So I scheduled them to play with an elite club national team, and they just got demolished. I mean, like, it's, it's your worst moment as a parent. is like putting them in a situation way out of their depth. They have no chance of experiencing any success. And they were there for an hour and a half. But here's what they did. They got crushed, but they fought hard, and they were resilient, and they were kind. That was on Tuesday. Here's what happened on, was it Saturday? Is that their last game? Or Sunday? Saturday? Here's what happened on Saturday. On Saturday, they were asked to guest play several teams down from the level they currently play at. Here's what they did in that game. Completely dominated. Like, just straight up, it was like having two LeBron James in the game, right? <laughs> Both of them scored. It was just complete. They won 7-4 to four or something like that. It was getting in that territory of, like, you felt bad. Okay, but here's my question. Which situation ignited more pride and delight in my heart about them? It was the way they handled themselves when they got crushed. Their loss, the manner in which they handled themselves and their loss, filled my heart way more than their victory. Because they showed strength and they showed character. There was so much delight in their display of strength in that loss than than there was delight in the fun of their victory y'all strength is far more important and it's actually far more delightful than success but here's the thing God doesn't simply tell you so be strong like look in yourself and find some resilience and find some strength it's a strength that's derived from his strength strengthened according to His might. It's the strength that comes from knowing you are irrevocably loved by the strong one. It's the kind of character trait of strength that is the product of a secure relationship, not the product of working out. You are strong when you are known and when you are loved. All of our weakness... The weakness that leads us to foolish decisions, to immaturity, to sin. The weakness that drives us to decisions driven by trying to cope with insecurity and anxiousness. The weakness that is anger. The weakness that is jealousy. The weakness that is selfishness. The weakness that is insecurity. All of these are the fruit of not knowing that we're loved or not being sure that we could be. You get strength to endure temptation, to endure trials, to endure humiliation, to endure failure, and even carry yourself with humility in your wins. That kind of strength to endure and comes with joy when you have a sure confidence. That God knows you all the way through and loves you. That's the last point. How do you get in on this? God's will for your life is for you to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because it's the best thing. But lastly, how then do you get in on it? Paul closes with, hey, you know, God your Father qualified you to share in the inheritance of His saints. And He delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us from the kingdom of Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now why does Paul close that way in his prayer? What he's doing is he's grounding or rooting the power to change, the power to seek God's will, to begin to grow into this kind of person in God's love for you and what He has already done for you. All these things are in the past tense. These are not things that you earn by doing better. These are things that Jesus has done for you so that you could grow to live more wisely and with character. The Christian life is not the prerequisite to be loved by God. The Christian life is the fruit or the organic outwork of God's gracious and redeeming love which precedes and empowers and surrounds your life. So Paul brings to bear two aspects of God's love for us in this letter. I I got this from my friend, Brian Haybig. That first line, hey, your father has qualified you to share inheritance of the saints. We talked about that a little bit two weeks ago, this idea of inheritance. And what I want to instead focus on here tonight is the simple point that he makes. God has made you his child. He qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. You're not an orphan. An orphan doesn't know who they are. They don't know their name. An orphan is therefore is anxious about identity. An orphan is afraid of the cost of messing up that they might be rejected, have no value or significance. An orphan always fears rejection. An orphan creates and lives in exclusive tribes. An orphan is suspicious of the power of love. Paul says he has put you in his family. J.I. Packer said it this way, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. Do you know that he does not love you less if you get an A or fail out? Do you know He doesn't love you any less when the world doesn't accept you? Do you know it's good news that He doesn't love you any more when you win? Do you know He doesn't love you any less when you sin? When tomorrow you try your look, Dad, and it falls apart. Do you know He doesn't love you any less then? He's your good Father. He's not the earthly Father that fails you. He's the, perfectly heaven, the perfect heavenly Father we've longed for. His love never fails. God's love. Paul talks us through the fatherhood of God. And then the second thing he says this, And remember, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did all of us show up in the world? Religious or not, Christian or not. We all showed up in the world. I mean, like, came into being human the exact same way. Regardless of where you showed up, regardless of who you showed up with, we all showed up selfish. And that selfishness has ruled us. And it takes on a lot of different forms. Some of us, the selfishness manifests itself. We needed to be light, so we're nice, and people don't know we're selfish, and the selfishness is driving our niceness. Right? Many of us, a lot of times, our selfishness, the way it rules us, shows up in some nasty, harsh things. Right? We're ruled by it. That's called the kingdom of darkness in the Bible. That's what it's referring to. But God is not just our Father. He's also, Paul draws our attention to the fact that He's also our deliverer. What Jesus did at the cross is free you and free me from the rule of sin and selfishness. He freed us through the act of forgiveness. He transferred us from a world of self-absorption, which can look, which can look really nasty but also look really nice. And in His act of forgiveness, in His act of love, He freed you to the possibility of experiencing, that means feeling something called love. And it's only when you know your love that you'll be freed to live a life of love. God delivers us from the slavery of self-absorption, and the whole Bible is just about that. That one aspect of God, that is what He loves to do. That's His character. It's what He loves to do. Think to yourself, this is what God really loves to do. Take people who don't know his love and transform them into and transfer them into a world of love. That's his favorite thing to do. And it's the best possible thing that could happen to you. It's better than the internship you want or the roommate situation you want or even getting to date Craig. Craig came back up. <laughs> I'm going to just read a quote from a friend of mine to close. It's a little bit longer. You're not supposed to do that in public speaking, but I can't improve upon it. He's an old RUF campus minister. He's a pastor in Oklahoma now. He got some pushback when he preached a sermon on some of these topics a couple of years ago, and he wrote this one-page article in response to it. Here's what he said. He said, Last week I said, God does not care if you make A's, and I could see the wheels spinning in the parent's mind. In quotes, If he says that, my son will not study. He'll fail out of college and be a bum living in a van down by a river. Chris Farley <laughs> referenced that. Ricky says this, Sometimes I reassure people that God loves them even when they're sinning. And again, some people angrily respond, If you tell them that, they're just going to go off into all kinds of immorality and addiction. Here's what Ricky says, I get sad for people who respond that way. I just don't think they've ever been loved. It's hard to feel loved. Most of us have a very difficult time believing that someone actually loves us Free from all our attempts to earn their affection. Personally, I was married over a decade before I truly believed my wife loved me. It's hard, it was hard for me to believe I was truly loved despite all the ugly sin lying in my heart. And when I finally believed she loved me, that didn't make me want to go out and sleep with other women. It didn't make me want to take up filthy habits that she would find repulsive. It didn't make me want to spend more time at work with my friends. Instead, it made me want to be with her. She was the only one who loved me. That's how love works. It gets inside you and makes you want to make the person who loves you happy. It makes you confident and secure. It makes you want to be with the one who loves you. For that reason... Ricky always stresses, he says, we stress the love of God. And if you believe He really loves you, you'll want to be with Him, you'll want to worship Him, you'll want to talk to Him, you'll want to love Him, you'll want to choose paths that lead you to Him and not away from Him. Anyone who has been loved knows that already. That those who have been forgiven much, love much and want to be like Jesus. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. And instead they need laws and fear to keep them in line. Do not settle for laws and fear, push deeper into Christ and find perfect love and let that love clean you up and change you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Paul and I pray as we consider these things think about our day tomorrow all that we have before us I pray that we begin to see that you long for something for us that's so much richer than what we are already desiring, that you would set our hearts on these good things, our imaginations on what it means to live with wisdom and understanding. In your name we pray. Amen.